Thank you, Charles. That's Philippians chapter 4, which is on page 1180. Page 1180. Philippians 4 from verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Could you keep your Bibles open, please, at that page 1180? As you're doing that, let's, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we <clears throat> thank you for your word, <clears throat> which is uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
We thank you too, Lord, that you know the secrets of all our hearts this evening. You know where we all stand with you. And we praise you that you are able to meet every need, as we've just read, every need that we may have come with this evening. Please speak to each one of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a quote from one of James Dickens, uh, Charles Dickens' characters. Cheerfulness and contentment are great beautifiers and are famous preservers of youthful looks. Cheerfulness and contentment are great beautifiers and are famous preservers of youthful looks. No need then to buy that really expensive anti-aging cream. Cheerfulness and contentment will do it for you. Here is a question. How would you complete the following statement? My life would be perfect if only... Dot, dot, dot. What would you put in there? Well, contentment is a topic that could not be more relevant. We're bombarded with ads in journals, in magazines, all encouraging us to be dissatisfied with what we've got, to think there is more just around the corner that will make life perfect. And Christians are not immune from this. In his book, The Greener Grass Conspiracy, American writer Stephen Altroger describes a conspiracy between the world, our hearts, and Satan to steal our happiness. He calls it the greener grass conspiracy from the old saying that the grass is always greener on the other side, that as you look over the fence at the homes of other people, your neighbours, their life always seems to be so much better than yours. But here's how he goes on. These three, the world, my heart, and Satan, are plotting and scheming together to make me perpetually discontent. They're stubbornly determined to poison the joy I have in God and to deceive me into believing that I can find happiness somewhere other than God. They want me to dishonor God by gorging on the unsatisfying pleasures of the world instead of finding true joy and satisfaction in Christ. Now, Anthony Selden, some of you may know his name, he's the former master of uh, Wellington College, in 2011 founded something called Action for Happiness. He is, if you like, our best-known happiness guru. And there was an interview in the Times in which he was asked if he was happy with what he'd done in his life. And there was quite a pause. The interviewer described how there was quite a pause and he stumbled a bit and came up with various things. And in the end, he said this, I do find it very hard to accept anything that I've ever done is any good. Wait for this. I feel a kind of despair when I look back and think, well, I should have done much better. That's a very sad answer for a happiness guru, isn't it? As we said, we come to the end of our series on Philippians. In the course of the last few weeks, we've seen what really mattered to Paul. From prison under house arrest in Rome, he wrote to the Philippians the key truths about following Jesus that he wanted to leave with them. And if you get your sermon card out or look at the um, sermons on the website, you'll see that each week we've gone through these different topics, key topics, really, for Paul. And they were all under the banner of joy which is why the title of our series has been A Life of Joy. The word joy or its derivatives occurs 16 times in this letter. Paul is saying that to follow Christ is to experience joy at the very deepest level, even when life is tough. Is that possible? 
Is that your experience as a Christian? Is that what you think the world thinks? How the world looks at Christianity? You know, do they look at us and think, wow, I'd really like to be like them? Or does the world say, that's so boring, it doesn't even cross my radar, I don't want anything to do with it? But then the world's experience is discontent. And um, today, as we've said, we're looking at contentment. And in this chapter, Paul shows us how, to quote Altroger again, we can find contentment on our side of the fence. I want to highlight four points from this, and it actually starts at the end of chapter 3. If you would uh, look at that, um, I'm going to read from verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And this is the point, first point I want to make, that true contentment starts from having the eternal perspective. True contentment starts from having the eternal perspective. Now that means knowing that you have a saviour, who's mentioned there in verse 20, 320, a saviour who died on the cross in your place, to save you from the consequences of your sin, namely an eternity without God. It means knowing that he's given you eternal life. Now, lots of people think that eternal life starts the moment we die. We kind of live in this world, then we die, and then if we're Christians, we're given eternal life. That's not true. Eternal life starts the moment we commit our life to Jesus Christ. From that moment on, if you like, there are two parallel lines running. There's the physical line of our physical, emotional life. There's the date I was born, which I know well. And there's the date I will die, which I don't know, which none of us knows. And somewhere along that line, you give your life to the risen Christ. And below that, another line starts. Now, that top line has an ending. But the bottom line is eternal life. And that goes on beyond your death. And that's your eternal life. And as Jesus said, when you, when you give your life to him, you cross from death to life. You become a citizen of heaven, and this world no longer feels like home. So you have this feeling, I guess we all have. You may go into work tomorrow, and you may say to people, uh, I was at church last night, and they will look at you blankly. Jesus doesn't even cross their radar. Because, and you know, you, you know you don't really belong here anymore. You have different values, different things. Our home is elsewhere. And as we saw in chapter 2, after Christ died, he rose again, and God exalted him to the highest place in heaven, where he is in control of all things in heaven and on earth. And whatever it may look like, as our preacher said on Father's Day, the King, Jesus, is on the throne. And one day he will come back, and again, this is all in chapter 2, and all will bow down before him, whether they acknowledged him in this life or not. At that time, too, as we read at the end of chapter 3, our bodies will be transformed. We will have new bodies. We will have um, bodies without blemish, eternal bodies, and sin will be dealt with forever. Now, if you don't know all that for yourself personally, if you've never known Christ as your personal saviour, you'll never find true contentment. That's a huge statement to make, but it's what God tells us in the Bible. So true contentment starts 
first with having the eternal perspective. And now let's look on to chapter 4, which uh, begins with Paul showing his deep love for these people whom he pastors. And then, in a rather amusing way, he asks his true companion, whose identity we don't know, to help two women, his co-workers, Euodia and Syntyche, to solve their differences. Sadly, people fell out with each other, even in the early church. But now in verses 4 to 20, we come to the main part of the passage. And here is my second point. True contentment comes from knowing how to pray so that all your anxieties are dealt with. Look at verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, there's a command. Rejoice always. Can that be right? Are we expected to rejoice when we've just had bad news? When we've lost our job? When nothing seems to be going well? But look at that the end of that sentence. It says, rejoice in the Lord. In other words, whatever else is going on in your life, there is something you can always rejoice over. Namely, that if you ask the risen Christ into your life, you are in him. And he loves you more than you will ever know. That's perhaps something that every one of us in church this evening needs to know, that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, whether you acknowledge him or not, more than you will ever know. He died in your place. And in fact, the bad things in our life are not a sign he does not love you. Though Satan would like you to think that. The great liar, the great deceiver. Because God is good all the time. And when we were in Tanzania, Charles and I learned that and we brought it back here. um, That little saying, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And you know, you can stir yourself up even in the very worst moments to shake your fist at Satan and say, I will rejoice. I will determine to do it. The prophet Habakkuk knew all about that. Listen to what he said at the end of his book in the Old Testament. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, this is a farmer speaking, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Note that same determination. I will. Now, when Charles had his minor heart attack three and a half years ago, as we, my daughter and I, in fact, two daughters, they came to be with me. Um, as Charles lay in hospital, we were staying in a premier inn nearby, very nearby, and I found Psalm 16, which, of course, I'd known for many years, but there was a particular verse there that God highlighted for me, and it was this, Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And there was almost that sense of shaking my fist at at Satan and saying, I don't care what you're doing here. I don't care what's going to happen. I will not be shaken. You see, that same determination, that same determination to be joyful in God, whatever the circumstances. Now, so we start with um, that, that being joyful, Here is the anxiety-relieving prayer. Start with thanksgiving. If you've got whatever anxiety you've got, pray about it, bring it to God, and start with thanksgiving. 
thank him that he's all-powerful, that no situation is too hard for him, thank him that he's good, and that he has done amazing things for you in the past. That will raise your level of faith. Then, and only then, bring your request to him, whatever is making you anxious. Nothing is too small for you to bring to him. But don't just pour out your requests and rush off. Take time to claim the promise in verse 7 that his peace will come. When you've done that, you can relax, knowing that the Lord is on your case. I remember as a small child, if I had a problem, going into my father's study, telling him about it, and just coming out again knowing it was going to be all right because Daddy was going to sort it out. Well, in a sense, it's like that with God, but it's much more than that. Because what we're talking about here is supernatural peace. Peace that comes uh, when everything looks against it. It's peace that goes very deep, guarding your heart and mind. As the NIV Studies Bible says, God's protective custody extends to the core of our beings. So deep down inside, we can know peace in the most unlikely situations. Most of you are too young to remember Chuck Colson. He was President Nixon's hatchet man. And that administration uh, became corrupt, and really the whole of America was horrified at what their president had been doing. And Chuck Colson was one of the people, as I said, described as his hatchet man. And uh, there was uh, Chuck Colson with others was indicted. A trial was coming up. And as he was waiting for the trial, uh, there were four men in in Washington, some senators, who were praying for Chuck Colson. And they get, somebody gave him mere Christianity to read. If you've never read it, it is a great book. And as he read it, he became a Christian. He gave his life to the Lord. Now, he had a great defense lawyer, one of the best that money could buy. And his defense lawyer had said to him, Chuck, don't worry, plead not guilty, and I'll make sure you get off. After he'd given his life to Christ, Chuck Colson went to his lawyer and said, I can't do it. I'm going to plead guilty. And the lawyer said, Chuck, you can't do that. That will mean certain prison. Now, prison was the one thing that Colson was terrified of. He was so known throughout the States, and he knew he would be a marked man in prison. But he said, I'm sorry. He said, in terms, I've become a Christian. I can't lie. I know I'm guilty. And so he pleaded guilty, and he was indeed sent to prison. Now, we have a book at home um, called Born Again. It's a very off-putting title, but if you've never read it, it's a great read. The first half is all about American politics. The second half is about his biography of, you know, what happened to him. And we got a photograph at home of Chuck Colson and his wife and his PA, and he's preparing for trial. And the caption of that photograph is, Peace, Peace, Serenity. Now, that's what I mean by supernatural peace. Peace when there's no outward reason for having it. Peace when he knew he was going to certain prison. But the lovely end to that story is God honored his honesty and integrity because he started something called Prison Fellowship, which has now gone throughout the world. Many, many, many prisoners have come to Christ as a result of Prison Fellowship. Many, many people have become Christians as a result of that. And God honored his integrity. But we have our part to play in all of this. That's the anxiety-relieving prayer. But Paul goes on in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, 
right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul said something very similar when I said we have our part to play again in chapter 2. Paul says to the Christians, to all of us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God works in you. There's a two-way thing here with God when we are disciples of Christ. And our part, as I've said, can be found here. Now, here in these two verses is the original positive thinking, which was fashionably discovered in the late 1990s as though it was something quite new. There was a whole positive thinking movement from which the happiness movement came. It's not new at all. There it is in Paul way back in the first century. And what he's saying is this, we need to guard our thought life. See, if we're continually filling our minds with all that is negative, dark, destructive and ugly, it will affect our sense of well-being and contentment. It will make us more anxious, less able to see the sovereignty of God in the world. So my advice is, and I say it to me as well as to all of us, Turn off the TV or the Netflix film that constantly blasphemes Christ. The radio program that endlessly snipes at Christians. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be informed about world events. As Christians, we we really should be so we can pray effectively. But what I am saying is we don't need to constantly fill our minds with the thinking of those who reject Christ. Instead, let's fill them with all that Paul sets out here. Read biographies of inspiring Christians. Born Again by Chuck Colson is one of them. Um, Listen to glorious music or worship songs. Walk in the country. I think there's a walk coming up in Box Hill. Or some of our great parks here in the city of London. And listen to birdsong. And yes, you can hear birdsong in the city. We have a blackbird that regularly sings at three o'clock in the morning in the square because it thinks that dawn has come. There's so many lights around. And similarly, don't take part in gossip that pulls people down. Be known as someone who always looks for the best in people. Be the person in your office, at the school gates, in the sports club who's always got something positive to say, who's always cheerful. True contentment comes from knowing how to pray so all your anxieties are dealt with. Now, I'm not very good at this. I mean, I'm still learning. Paul talks about learning. Um, And um, I'm afraid I had a bad situation yesterday when the Wi-Fi went down at midnight on Friday and didn't come back till midnight last night. I had written my talk, but I needed to go on Wi-Fi to sort out some things in it. And it was just done. And Charles will tell you, I did not do well in terms of anxiety. I have a lot. (laughs) I have a lot to learn. Okay, so that's the first two things. The third one is true contentment comes from knowing that in Christ... You have the strength to meet whatever life throws at you. In Christ, you have the strength to meet whatever life throws at you. Look at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to say it. Now, one of the backgrounds to this letter is Paul thanking the Philippians for a gift they'd given him, which you can read about in the second half of chapter 4. But he goes on. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him, that's through Christ, who gives me strength. Note it has nothing to do with circumstances, with everything going well. You can have a problem with being content, uh, whether you're well-fed or hungry. In plenty, when things are going really well, you can still be discontented. The discontented person is always complaining about their lot. You don't know what an unhappy childhood I had. I just haven't had the breaks in life that I deserved. My husband never helps at home. Well, that's not true of mine. Or, if you're somebody who has plenty, the swimming pool is still not warm enough. I just can't get the pool company to fix it. Now, when we Christians complain, as Stephen Altroger says, we're loudly saying that the blessings of the gospel aren't enough. We're saying the death of Christ isn't enough. We're saying that eternal fellowship with God, purchased at great cost to God, isn't enough to satisfy our souls. We're saying the forgiveness of sins and peace with God is nice, but not that nice. We're saying that God himself, who is the very definition of goodness, isn't good enough. You see, the contented Christian can bring good out of any circumstance. We saw this in chapter 1, when Paul, you remember, was under house arrest, and clearly some of the Christians were worried that, um, were upset, that because he was in prison, his ministry was being hindered. But if you look back to chapter 1, if you just turn back to it, here's what Paul says to answer that. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, not hinder it. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, that's the emperor's guard, and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What is Paul saying? That that good has come out of this. And that because of that, now Paul was chained 24 hours a day to a guard and he made jolly sure that every guard that came to him heard the gospel. Um, And then he's, you can read on in chapter one, he hears that others are preaching the gospel out of envy or rivalry. And again, his um, disciples, his friends, followers clearly don't like it. But look at the great phrase he says there (coughs) in verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. You know, the contented person says, what does it matter? It really doesn't matter if the main thing is happening. And as I've just said, note that it has to be learned. Now, the discontented person says things like, I can't do it, it's no good, I'm useless, because they have no idea of God's power in their life. So what is the secret of contentment? The secret is to rely on the power that comes from being united to the risen Christ. And the Greek word translated strength here, look back at chapter 4. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That Greek word has the same root as our word dynamite. In other words, Christ's dynamite power, the power that raised him from the dead, is available to every Christian. And it's not just a super-Christians like Paul, because we're not talking about Paul's strength, but Christ's. 
any Christian can draw from that dynamite power. Now, I'm not sure that we Christians really realize what is being said here. In Christ, the most amazing power is available to every one of us. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that need defeat you and me if we draw on that strength. The contented Christian knows that with God, the impossible becomes possible. True contentment comes from knowing that in Christ, you have the strength to meet whatever uh, life throws at you. Finally, fourthly, true contentment comes from knowing that God will meet all our needs. Look at verse 19. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Again, picture Paul in prison under house arrest. You know, the circumstances aren't great. And is he moaning? No. He's encouraging the Christians who are outside. He's saying, look, whatever needs you have, God will meet them. The discontented person feels they never have enough. However lovely or useful a gift they're given, it's never quite right. They're perfectionists. However special a birthday someone organizes for them, it's never quite what they wanted. However much money they have, they always look at someone who's got a little bit more. The discontented person worries about all their needs. Will the children get to the right school? Will their friends be around to help if they hit a crisis? Will they have enough money in old age? The contented Christian knows they serve a wonderfully generous God. And alongside verse 19, listen to this from 2 Corinthians 9, 8, which is one of my favorite verses. And it's Paul again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God is amazingly generous and gracious. So in Christ, we have everything. Think of all the headings we've just gone through. We can have freedom from anxiety. We can have strength to meet whatever life throws at us. We have a God who knows and will meet our every need. Above all, we have an eternity to look forward to of unimaginable glory. A life of joy indeed. The source of true contentment. Uh, Following Christ has been for me the greatest adventure. I never thought it would be, but it has. God, my heavenly Father, has never let me down, nor will he. And the adventure will continue. It continues for Charles and me. It continues for all of you. Let's put Christ at the center, and everything else will work out. Let's pray.